Welcome to the ASHP Advantage Podcast, engaging the experts on ASHP Official, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare. Thanks for joining us in this episode of Pharmacy Hot Topics, where we sit down with content matter experts to discuss what is currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. My name is Dr. Jorge Garcia, Assistant Vice President of System Oncology and Infusion Pharmacy Services at Baptist Health South Florida. And today I'll be chatting with Dr. Amy Banks, who is a certified multiple sclerosis clinical pharmacist and team lead for the neurology and MS pharmacist at the Vanderbilt Specialty Pharmacy at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Today's episode, A New Landscape, Biosimilars in Multiple Sclerosis is a part of the ASHP Advantage podcast series, engaging with experts and featuring conversations with top-level practitioners. This episode is sponsored in part by Amgen and is also supported in part by an independent medical education grant from Sandoz, an awardist division. This episode is for informational purposes and not approved for continuing education credit. Please visit the Biosimilar Resource Center initiative titled Biosimilar Adoption Breaking Through Barriers at www.adoptbiosimilars.org for more resources on biosimilars. Thanks for joining us today, and let's get started. Dr. Amy Banks, thank you so much for being with us today. Can you please start off by telling us a little bit more about your professional background and practice setting? Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Garcia. I am glad to join you today and talk about the this new world or new landscape of biosimilars um, in the treatment of multiple sclerosis. Um, I am a clinical pharmacist, as you said, at the Neuroimmunology Center at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. I have practiced in what we have traditionally referred to as our MS center at Vanderbilt. I've practiced there for the last 10 years. Um, We are technically a neuroimmunology center. And so that um, is important in the context of this uh, conversation because our, the providers that I work with are neuroimmunologists specifically um, and specialize in the treatment of multiple sclerosis and related disorders, not just MS or multiple sclerosis. So I think that's that's relevant for this conversation. Um, but I, I, I treat mostly patients with MS. That is my area of specialty and focus. Um, I am MS certified. I work within a collaborative pharmacy practice agreement with our MS specialist um, at our MS center or our neuroimmunology center. Um, and that team is an interdisciplinary team consisting of um, 10 neurologists. We actually just um, had two um, fellows in training join our practice. Um, I work alongside one physician's assistant, um, and all of those providers are specialized or specializing um, during their training um, in the treatment of multiple sclerosis and those other related disorders. Um, an example of those other neuroimmune um, or neuroimmunology conditions that we treat um, includes NMOSD, which is neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorder. We also see and treat patients with um, neurosarcoidosis, as well as MOG antibody disease. So those are a few of those other 
um, more rare sort of MS mimics that are seen and treated in our clinic with monoclonal antibodies um, oftentimes. As a part of our neuroimmunology center, we also have an on-site infusion center, as well as a full clinical research team all within uh, the four walls of our um, off-site MS clinic here in Vanderbilt, or in, at Vanderbilt in Nashville. Well, thank you, Amy. I, I really think you have a great design there for the practice. Love to see that you have collaborative practices, agreements in place, but also just uh, the capabilities that you bring to the program in having both specialty pharmacy access and infusion capabilities really does allow you to provide that comprehensive approach to MS care. That's really great. Now, when it comes to biosimilars in your current experience, are we seeing any uh, products in MS or in neuroimmunology as of yet? Great question. For MS specifically, or multiple sclerosis specifically, um, we do not yet have an FDA-approved biosimilar product available. We do have experience um, using monoclonal antibodies as well as their biosimilars um, in an off-label capacity as disease-modifying therapies, um, not only for MS, um, but uh, those other rare disorders as well. So, for example, um, historically um, and even sometimes currently, rituximab has been used as an off-label treatment for progressive forms of MS, especially prior to the approval of FDA-indicated therapies for primary progressors or the FDA-indicated therapy for primary progressive MS, as well as some label updates um, on the FDA indication for um, active secondary progressive MS. So we do have historical use of um, biosimilars um, or monoclonal antibodies and their biosimilars um, as off-label though. So not specifically yet do we have anything which is FDA approved as far as biosimilars for MS specifically. We are on the hills of our first biosimilar product being approved. Um, we don't have an exact timeline, um, or at least I'm not aware of a published timeline or published date but by the end of this year, by the end of 2023, we do expect that the FDA um, might approve the biosimilar natalizumab product. Um, so that is definitely coming soon. And that makes this conversation and this topic um, even more relevant and applicable. I will add, and this is not exactly biosimilar, but hopefully we know that or we're learning that if we don't yet know that. Um, I will just add in in the space of MS or in the treatment of multiple sclerosis, um, we do have several generic versions of a few of our disease-modifying therapies. So we know generics are not the same as biosimilars. If we don't know that yet, we can reference our, our resource center and get more information. Um, but we do have about five years of experience in the world of MS treatment of utilization of generic products. And so Again, not the same as a biosimilar, but I do think when we think about or talk about utilization and uptake of biosimilar products in MS and in neuroimmunology in general, I do think the experience and use of generic products can play a role um, in that utilization and uptake. So no biosimilars for MS just yet as far as FDA approval, but coming soon is natalizumab biosimilar, hopefully by the end of 2023. Well, thank you, Amy. It does seem that you all navigate through different therapy options for your patients. Um, and so I think so much of uh, biosimilars is about navigating through those options with payer support, patient input, provider input. So this positions you all 
for uh, the entry into the biosimilar space, hopefully with natalizumab in the very near future. Of course, very exciting to be able to bring a product at a fraction of the cost to these new uh, uh, patient communities, thinking about MS and neuroimmunology specifically. Now, I mean, my next question here, so much of biosimilar implementation is really being able to work through the challenges at the specific practice. When you think about the MS um, and neurology practice in general, what are some of the challenges that you can anticipate as you think about biosimilars coming into this space? Yeah, so I think my first, the first challenge I can think of, there's two big ones, but the first one that I'll mention, I, I think is related just to general hesitancy or resistance of just new products sometimes in general, especially when the new product is a a generic or a generic-like. Um, again, we know biosimilars are not equal to generics, um, especially with the development and manufacturing process, which is very different compared to our simple and, and even some of our, you know, more complex non-biologic therapies. But from a neurologist, from a from a medical doctor's perspective, sometimes they do think about generics and biosimilars kind of in one lump sum. And I think there has been some hesitancy um, around implementation or utilization of generic-like and biosimilar products. I, I will say that I do think this is a great area um, or a great place for pharmacists to be able to play a role in provider education um, on biosimilars in general. What is a biosimilar? How is it different than a generic? Um, providing any of the literature and medical data that we have that's specific to any of those products. And then also just awareness around the availability of those products. So I do think pharmacists especially can play a really big role here, um, especially those of us if we're working in a health system um, and we're working hand in hand or side by side or in collaboration with with the prescribers. So, you know, when we when we look back at MS treatment, I, I witnessed this. Um, I was um, working in the MS clinic at Vanderbilt when the first generic um, disease modifying therapy was approved. And I saw early hesitancy um, around the generic products. Um, but the good news is, um, even though it has taken some time, and I do think this is can be expanded and is the case across many of our um, neurology practices and academic medical centers even, um, I do think with increased utilization and experience over the last few years, we have seen um, and it has been proven that there is no significant difference in safety or efficacy with most, if not all, of these generic products. So I do see that translate over into the conversations that we're having now about biosimilars and the you know upcoming availability of the natalizumab biosimilar, you know, not only for that specific product for MS, but also just across um, the board when we use biosimilars. Um, or monoclonal antibodies and their biosimilars for some of those other off-label indications. So, you know, I think the experience um, with the generics, again, is not exactly, generics are not exactly the same, but I think that experience and that use and now that confidence um, in those generic products can be translated over to the biosimilars, not only confidence for the providers, but also for the patients. And I think that's an important piece of this as well. When we look at biosimilar natalizumab specifically, uh, the phase three antelope study actually shows no difference in safety and efficacy between the biosimilar and the reference product. So I think that's really important. Um, again, awareness of that study, awareness of the results can be helpful and help build um, additional confidence for the utilization of that, nat that natalizumab biosimilar product specifically. Just in general, 
as far as, you know, natalizumab goes, uh, the reference product is a widely used disease modifying therapy. So this is not a treatment that we use sometimes or, you know, that is on the, on the lower list of um, volume, I guess I should say, especially in centers of excellence and especially among MS specialists. Um, natalizumab is a very highly prescribed or ordered treatment. Um, that's because it has an overall highly favorable risk versus benefit profile. So it's very effective. And for many patients with MS, it is actually very safe. So with this, again, the MS specialists, especially the reference product has somewhat become of a, a household name, I guess, in a way, because they use it so often. Um, they they call it by name. Um, so I, I do expect at least early on um, that we may see um, maybe it maybe it's more of habit, but I, I think there will be at play here a little bit of some brand loyalty towards that product. Um, providers are just accustomed to you know ordering a specific product. So again, pharmacists can play a critical role in education here. But I, I think that that habit or the experience of frequent use can potentially become a barrier or be a barrier early on to adoption of some of the biosimilar products just because of um, some loyalty or some convenience or familiarity of using that reference product. Um, but again, the, the phase three antelope study shows efficacy and safety results that are very um, similar to uh, the reference product. And so I think that will help alleviate some concerns for providers as well as patients. Um, and then, you know, when, uh, back to thinking about just barriers in general. So education is key hopefully to help overcome some of the concerns or hesitancies toward adoption of biosimilar products. Um, and, and you mentioned cost, and I think that's a really important one as well. So these medications are really expensive. Natalizumab is expensive. Almost all of our disease-modifying therapies for MS now are very expensive. Um, the generics do offer some savings there, um, and it's great that we have, you know, upcoming very soon, more cost-effective monoclonal antibody um, biosimilar for natalizumab as well. It's really great that the health system as a whole can save significantly here without sacrificing the really important outcomes of efficacy and safety, right? Um, but we do want to remember the patient. And I think it's really important that we always consider the patient here as well. So, you know, while we're considering what is financially more favorable for the health system or the infusion center in the case of natalizumab, I do think it's important to also consider the financial impacts and the financial potential financial toxicity um, to the patient, even if the health system is saving. So um, we can talk about, you know, later on, you know, resources and things like that that might be available. But I, I do think considering the patient as part of that equation is really important. But cost is is something that's top of mind as far as concerns in the world of MS with providers and with patients specifically because the medications themselves are so expensive. Absolutely, Amy. You touched on so many great points here, and I, I have to completely agree. Now, I oftentimes say biosimilars uh, come to the market not because they are safer or more efficacious, but because they bring an economic benefit. And that benefit has to carry to the patient as well. We definitely have more, more work to do there. But you touched on a couple of other things that I think are key. Provider hesitancy, definitely something we experience in the oncology space. The good news there is that it can be overcome and pharmacy does play an essential role in making sure that we provide evidence 
on uh, biosimilars safety and efficacy. Now, when it comes to efficacy, pharmacovigilance, it's really key. And uh, I know you noted uh, studies for natalizumab that really show a similar efficacy and safety. I think beyond uh, the studies that are utilized to support FDA approval, it's very important that as pharmacists, we think about every single day that this pharma, uh, these biosimilars have been in the marketplace for several years now in the U.S. It's an added date of confidence that from a safety standpoint, these products are performing well. And I think it's worth to note here that here in the U.S. or in the Europe market, there have been no biosimilars that have been removed from the marketplace due to a safety or uh, efficacy concern. So in my own experience, I have always found it very helpful when I'm having discussions with providers to anchor the conversation on that safety and efficacy, not only the studies, but also the real world evidence that continues to grow every day. Amy, I want to move forward to the next question here. You talked about potential challenges that you may see in your space as biosimilars come in. Can you think specifically about access barriers that you could potentially see uh, in your clinic as you try to care for your patients? Yeah, absolutely. And I, going back just a second, I do completely agree with you um, on the more broad context and appreciate you adding in the bigger picture here, right? Like I, it's it's easy for us and it's easy for my neurologist to focus on just MS and just their patients, but I do think it's really important and I need to be reminded so I can remind my team and my providers, right, that um, biosimilars have been around for a while. This is not new. This is not even just local or um, domestic here. It's international. So yeah, all, all of the international and global experience is really important. So thank you for adding that as a reminder. So in the MS space specifically, yeah, barriers to access. I mean, one of the biggest ones is we use the term now financial toxicity because that's what it's become. Um, these medications are really expensive. So our disease modifying therapies, which I apologize if I've already abbreviated or truncated to DMTs. Um, that's what we that's the acronym we use. So DMT, our disease modifying therapies are all high cost specialty medications. Um, they require a significant amount of coordination of care. That's why, you know, MS centers that focus on this um, generally have built up teams um, and are able to really successfully implement these medications and start patients on therapy quickly um, when it's most appropriate and when the patient, you know, is, is on board with that treatment plan. So coordination of care, what does that look like? Well, it's the provider, it's the insurance plan, it's the pharmacy. Um, a lot of times it's a mail order specialty pharmacy. So it's not one the patient can walk up and have a face-to-face -face conversation with their local pharmacist. In this case, the coordination requires involvement of the infusion center and the infusion pharmacy. And there's many other players. And, and again, importantly, the patient is at the center of that. And I think that's just something that I want to emphasize again, over and over and over again. So so a primary barrier to access is cost. In the world of MS, we have been fortunate um, and have become dependent is, is really honestly the best word to describe. We, we've become heavily uh, dependent on manufacturer support programs. Um, and the types of patient support that programs that these manufacturer provided programs offer are things like benefits investigations and benefits verifications and um, copay assistance for our non-government patients or patients with non-government insurance types. Um, they even offer full patient assistance for those who are uninsured or severely underinsured or for whom 
maybe the provider disagrees with the listed preferred formulary alternative because maybe it has an inferior efficacy and we want to use natalizumab as a first-line agent for a patient with significant disease burden and um, risk factors for early disability. So we do use medications um, that are appropriate based on guidelines that maybe the insurance company has a, a a carve out against. So we do take advantage of these manufacturer programs significantly. Um, they also offer interim doses and bridge supply in the event of maybe a lapse in coverage or some other reason for a gap in access. With natalizumab specifically and, and many of our other infusible um, medication um, or manufacturer support programs for infusible medications, they coordinate with infusion centers. So they help us locate infusion centers for a patient who maybe is not convenient to Nashville and can't come in um, to our infusion center every month. So we we utilize those programs for infusion center coordination and even um, location of of centers that are in network with the patient's insurance plan. Um, they also have nurse educators, so they help with adherence monitoring and provide other types of clinical nursing support. So we, we heavily rely on these programs. Key to the program enrollment is the manufacturer enrollment form, and it's specific to the, each product. So um, step one is obtain patient signature, obtain provider signature, and submit the enrollment form. And that's the first step to allow patients to have access to these really important services that each manufacturer program offers. Um, that's where the coordination of care really starts, is bringing all the parties together, making sure that we're getting all of the right paperwork to the right place, and keeping everyone informed, and communicating back and forth, and again, reporting back to the patient along the way. But the START forms are really important. Um, or these enrollment forms that we, we often call start forms are really important, um, especially when we talk about products like natalizumab that have RIMS programs. So RIMS being the risk evaluation and mitigation strategy program um, that can be a requirement by the FDA for certain products. Um, natalizumab, and therefore it's biosimilar, will have this RIMS pr um, program requirement. So it's not just access to services, for financial assistance and care coordination, but now we're adding in the layer of FDA-required REMS programs. Um, and so that's additional paperwork and additional consents and additional enrollments that are required. Um, so again, related to the access piece, benefits and investigation process for these high-cost medications is really important. And so, you know, in the health system specifically um, and, and within the academic medical centers, um, I just wanna add in if you are with a health system or anyone who's working in an academic medical center, um, hopefully you already have a system in place um, as far as working as a coordinated team and collaboration with the providers. Um, oftentimes for benefits investigations, that might include um, a nursing team or it might include a pharmacy team or it might include a billing team or a combination of all of those. I do think when we talk about biosimilars and you know, new products to the market, um, especially um, in the world of biosimilars, we really need to be intentional um, with our benefits investigation process, and we really need to work together on the prior authorizations and these pre-certification processes. Why is that? Well, the insurance companies, of course, um, are trying to save cost, and so they are implementing various step edit criteria for coverage of different products, um, especially when there's something like a generic or a biosimilar alternative available. Um, so, it, 
just, you know, maybe this is a plug for process improvement or just like a prompt for, you know, anyone that's working in this type of system that doesn't have this system or this process and procedure in place yet. I do think it's really important for prior authorization teams to work closely with providers um, so that they can determine if an insurance company is saying we won't cover this maybe reference product, but we will cover this biosimilar that the provider is aware that they are given all the information they need to therefore um, confirm that this product is appropriate. And again, that might include education and additional information around that new product that they might not even be aware of, um, or that new biosimilar, for example. So I do think the prior authorization teams and the pre-cert teams really should be working closely with the prescribers so that everyone's on the same page of what the options are and making sure that the recommended therapy or the insurance preferred therapy, um, which is probably going to end up being a cost savings option for the patient, um, is actually appropriate for the patient. So again, I can't say enough, education and awareness is so important um, in the context of biosimilars, especially when we talk about biosimilar or disease modifying therapies or um, in general that require significant care coordination and many parties involved due to the high cost. It's just all tied in together. Um, and again, keeping the patient at the center of this conversation so that they are informed of what's going on. They have confidence in the plan. They have an understanding and confidence. If the doctor says, start this name brand product, which is the reference product, but they're actually going to be treated with a biosimilar product that may actually be given another or different name, if you will. Um, I do think it's important just to keep everyone focused on collaboration, communication, and again, I, I don't know how many times I've said it, and I'll probably say it again before before we're over, is just keeping the patient at the center of that conversation. Well, Amy, I think uh, most of your remarks really, when it comes to access, really come to that patient being at the center. There's so much work that gets done to access therapy for each patient. And oftentimes it takes a different approach based on where the patient's at, based on the benefit designs or lack of, of insurance for some of our patients. So this is a little bit of a science. It is a little bit of art. And I know how hard our, our teams work to be able to ultimately establish access for patients. I think one important thing to highlight here is as we look at potential biosimilar options to be onboarded to the practice, we definitely want to exercise the benefit of accessing those medications at a fraction of the cost, but we don't want to lose on the help that those products provide to patients that do demonstrate financial necessity. And so in my experience, what I have seen is that although biosimilars come at a discounted price, most of, of the manufacturers do provide a patient assistance, which could be on the form of copay assistance, for some patients or free product assistance for some patients that have a genuine uh, financial need. So for those of you considering biosimilars in your space, that does give you potentially the best of both worlds, a product to your practice that is discounted, but also the same help that you count on uh, with those references products to make sure that you can help all of your patients that um, show up at, at your door. So Amy, um, I know you briefly mentioned REMS requirements and I don't want to go deep into it, but at a high level, can you tell us why REMS 
is important in the natalizumab space. And of course, we know that the biosimilar op options for this product are likely to require these uh, RAM, uh, RAM requirements as well. So if you could expand on that, that would be great. Yeah, absolutely. So natalizumab does um, have a REMS program and um, that REMS is revolved around the potential risk of PML or progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, which is a very rare um, but very serious and potentially fatal infection. And so it's a safety REMS um, that requires education to the patient and consent by the patient, um, provider enrollment, um, in the program. The infusion center has to be enrolled in the program. So again, back to the care coordination piece, there's a lot of paperwork involved. Um, so this safety REMS is um, specific to natalizumab. It will be carried over to the biosimilar product. We fully expect that it will be carried over and applied to the biosimilar product, of course, um, because it is also natalizumab. But the program itself, you know, revolving around safety, but it requires, again, patient enrollment, prescriber enrollment. Um, there's certain requirements such as periodic evaluations, um, and that's periodic evaluations of the risk of PML. So that includes um, primarily um, anti-JCV level testing, um, which is important um, for this conversation as well. And I can elaborate on that also if needed. But basically, Providers need to assess risk in an ongoing fashion at least every six months. Um, and though the different paperwork and re, uh, reauthorization questionnaires are required um, prior to treatment, during treatment, and then at least six months after treatment in case there's any carryover um, infection cases that persist within the six months after discontinuation. So there's a lot of paperwork. There's a lot of um, checking in. And again, this is to help make sure that the medications are being used um, safely. And if patient risks change over time, um, which can be predicted with that anti-JCV antibody level, um, then therapy might need to be interrupted or discontinued. Um, so another one of the requirements of the program is that any opportunistic infection should be reported, especially PML, um, of course, as well as just general hospitalizations, and any death that occurs while in therapy and or within six months after treatment. So very specific requirements. This is one of the biggest questions that we get um, from providers when we have started to talk about the um, upcoming approval and anticipated approval of the biosimilar product. So after, is it safe and effective? The question is, you know, what about JCV antibody testing? And then after that usually is are my patients going to be able to afford this? Um, and what types of patient support services are available? So the good news is, is that we do expect for the biosimilar natalizumab product um, that will be approved hopefully by the end of the year, that is a Sandoz product. We do expect right now that they will offer very comparable, if not basically equivalent um, services as far as the REM support, patient support, copay support, all of those things. So we do expect very comparable, if not equal, services for the biosimilar natalizumab um, as what we've become accustomed to with the reference product. So that is a huge relief. Um, that is a critical and key component of this conversation on, you know, when we think about will these products be used? Can they be used? Can patients access therapy? The REMS product or the REMS program is um, is really important. And how do we manage that? How do we monitor a patient? What happens when we need to switch a patient? So I know you said we're going to keep this part brief, but I'm, I'm going to expand a little bit. This is really 
this is these are the ongoing conversations that we're having right now. So, you know, hypothetically, our, our most likely patients will switch um, from one to the other. So we do expect some of our current patients receiving the the reference product, you know, within six weeks, six months, six years possibly of the availability of the biosimilar product. We do expect these patients to switch. So the question becomes, how do we manage the RIMS requirements for those patients? So we need to be able to see um, previous infusion and treatment histories um, of all natalizumab products. And so that is one good thing that we've heard um, and we're hopeful for that the RIMS portal, we expect it to be online, again, very similar, if not almost the same as the RIMS portal, which is online for the reference natalizumab. We do expect the RIMS portal, probably because the FDA will require this, but we do expect that the portals will either be linked or either, or at least be able to pull data from the other products. So for example, when a patient is switched over to the biosimilar natalizumab, um, and we enroll the patient with that program. They've signed all of their REMS consent forms. We know the provider's enrolled, the infusion center's enrolled. We should be able to access and pull over any natalizumab treatment history, even if it was a reference product. Um, so that, again, that's going to be really important because we we monitor dosing, adherence. Um, we monitor the number of um, infusions because that's one of the, the variables that we consider um, when we are guesstimating or stratifying and estimating PML risk. It's going to be based on the number of infusions or the, the, the time of exposure to natalizumab, actually. And it's going to be based on the patient's specific anti-JCV antibody level. There's another factor, but not really applicable in this conversation. Um, so we do want to be able to, to make sure that we understand specific risk for a patient, not just based on their biosimilar natalizumab treatment, but based on their total exposure to natalizumab. So the integration or the ability to pull that data from one to the other, one REMS portal to the other, is going to be really important. So I guess I'll go ahead and, and go into the, the anti-JCV antibody um, piece of this. So that lab test is really, really important. It's how we determine how safe natalizumab will be for a patient. We calculate the risk of PML or we, we stratify, we use a, a, you know, a, a calculation to determine the potential risk of PML based on that anti-JCV level antibody and how many doses or how many months of exposure to natalizumab a patient has received. I just learned this recently. So this is actually new information to me. I was not aware, but the current anti-JCV antibody test is actually, um, I'm not sure if it's trademarked or copyright trademarked. Um, I'm not sure the legal term there, but it is um, It is only available to uh, the manufacturer of the reference product. So each biosimilar, starting with Sandoz as the first um, this year, probably um, each biosimilar product um, who makes a biosimilar natalizumab available, we expect we'll have to develop their own anti-JCV antibody test or assay. Um, so that is really a key component, but also it's important to note that there's a chance that the, the results will not be equivalent. So there may need to be some calculation or some calibration to make sure that we understand. This is getting really technical in the MS space, so I hope I'm not, I'm not losing anybody. Um, but we, we need to make sure that we understand what, you know, what the equivalent results are. So if a patient has a 0.5 antibody level to JC virus from the original product, 
um, or the parent product um, test, how does that compare to a 0.5 or a 0.6 or a 0.3 for the biosimilar product? So that is all still to be determined. Um, I do not know the answer to that, but I do know or believe that Sandoz is researching this. They're, um, they have done and they're continuing to do comparison studies to make sure that they understand what the, the equivalence is from one test to the other. This is so critical to the utilization of not only natalizumab, but it's biosimilar. I mean, it, this is just so important. We have to be able to fully understand how to have these tests done, what the results mean, how to assess the test results to make sure that we're treating patients appropriately and as equally as we we have been right with this little change um, from the from the parent product. So yes, it's it's all important. Um, the REMS program is critical. The anti-JCV testing um, availability is critical. The understanding of what that result means, being able to compare um, to determine if the level is maintained steady or if it's steadily increasing over time, which is generally what occurs. Um, we just have to be able to understand the the equivalencies, um, and that may require some calculations to do that. So. Again, more information is coming soon, probably. Um, we, we do expect that this will all be detailed by the FDA when they approve the, the biosimilar natalizumab, um, and then we will be able to learn more about what that test looks like, what the results look like, how to compare, um, and then how to utilize the portal to hopefully have as seamless of a transition for patients and, and providers, of course, from one product to the next or vice versa. I mean, there could be a time when a patient starts on a biosimilar and then their next insurance plan in January actually prefers or has a, um, a preference towards the, the parent product. So yeah, a lot, a lot to consider, but still a lot of information coming. Yeah, it, it, it's important, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you, thank you, Amy. I think we've covered a lot today. I really wanna thank you for your time and all the wonderful insights that you shared today. As we expand biosimilars and these come to new disease states, uh, we need to lean more on practitioners like you, Amy, who are subspecialized to ensure that we can bring more therapy options to uh, patients like in neurology and, and MS. Um, you know, uh, in the oncology space, we see that a lot of the uh, biosimilars that came in ultimately took the majority of the market share, and you have a lure to uh, your patients at some point transitioning to biosimilars. You know, in oncology, we've done that with both supportive care medications as well as therapeutic medications, and we really need to foster collaboration so that we can share our successes um, with uh, people uh, like you who may be newer to biosimilars and patients that may be newer to biosimilars. So uh, one more time, thank you for all your ins insights today. For the audience, thank you so much for joining us for this discussion. Please visit the Biosimilar Resource Center initiative titled Biosimilar Adoption, Breaking Through Barriers on our website, www.adopt biosimilars.org, you will be able to find more biosimilar resources uh, there. And with that, we hope that you enjoyed today's conversation. Please uh, be sure to subscribe to the ASHP podcast through your favorite podcast provider. So much. appreciate your attention today and uh, wishing you all a good day. Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts. Be sure to visit ashp.org for
forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time for more expert perspectives on ASHP Official.